Let's turn to the scriptures. Uh, on the front page of your notes, we're going to read from the little book of Titus, which is one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. The key verse is verse 13. Let me just read that one first. Paul writes, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our theme this morning is the blessed hope. What is it? Why does it matter? How does it impact us? How do we focus on this blessed hope? Here's the whole passage. Let's read this together. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Here's the main idea that I'm going to uh, track through this morning. Those who follow Jesus now anticipate his return to gather his people and to complete God's story of redemption. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity for us to gather together to sing praises to you, even new songs of praise to you to be reminded of your sacrifice and your love for us, to pray for a brother as he goes off to serve, and to pray for each other as we wait for Jesus to return. Thank you for these promises. Allow them to encourage our hearts, and not, not just to be part of the belief system of the church, but actually part of our individual operating systems where we look for long for and anticipate the return of Jesus so powerfully that it changes the way that we look at each and every day. We ask this in his name. Amen. Last August, Sue and I attended the wedding of my cousin Pam. You don't know Pam. You've never met Pam. You probably never will. But Pam is interesting uh, this morning because she turned 50 last year. She had never been married, was a busy, happy, single woman with a great career. She was extremely involved in her church with a ministry of discipling and praying with and for younger women. And then about a year ago, she met Jeff. Jeff was a pastor in Connecticut, where she lives, whose wife had died after a tough battle with cancer. In Jeff, Pam found someone who loves the Lord as much as she does. In Pam, Jeff found someone whose prayer life made a profound impression on him and who also had a heart large enough to enfold his four adult children. As this wedding began, my uncle walked Pam down the aisle. You have to realize my uncle's in his late 80s, and just walking down the aisle was a bit of a challenge. And when he got to the front of the church, the pastor who was officiating uh, this particular wedding asked, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Question you and I have heard hundreds of times when we've attended weddings, right? My uncle called out, I've been waiting for 50 years to say I do. 
And the whole place broke up in laughter the way that you just did. And then applause at the beginning of the wedding. And when the wedding ended, there was about 10 minutes of standing applause for this couple. I've never seen anything like that in all my life. What followed was the most joy-filled wedding I have ever attended. Now, there's a very simple reason for beginning with that story, and it's this. Some things in life are worth waiting for. And when we find them, the celebration is unstoppable. Some things in life are just worth waiting for. Since the first Sunday in January, we've worked our way through this series that we're calling the School of Hope. And this School of Hope has brought insights for us from a variety of fascinating people whose stories are found in the Bible, including Abraham, then Christy took us through a look at Jacob, and then Joseph, Ruth, Job, and David. And then last Sunday, we turned our attention to Jesus, whom the Bible calls the anchor of our souls. And this morning, the final message in the School of Hope centers on this phrase that the Bible calls our blessed hope. I won't keep you in suspense. Our blessed hope is the long-anticipated return of Jesus. For however long you've been a Christian, whether that's decades long or whether you decided this morning when you saw that we were having communion to put your trust in Jesus, we are all waiting and we are all anticipating the coming of Jesus and the return to this earth of Jesus when we will see him face to face. Why does this matter? Well, we began this series by looking at these two verses from Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews writes, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Those were part of the lyrics of the song that David just led us through. The next verse says, This is what the ancients were commended for. And I don't know if any of you remember it, but on that day, the, the statement that I made right after that was that we today, as modern believers in Christ, want to have a faith that the ancient Christians would have recognized and said, that's the real thing. In short, we want to have the same faith that they were commended for having. That's our goal in life. Not, not to change it, not to reinterpret it, not to make it something that it wasn't before, not to be so novel that we're celebrating truths that nobody's ever heard before. No, we want to celebrate in new ways, in contemporary language, with contemporary illustrations, the same faith that we know that the ancient early Christians were commended by God for, because in the end, what we want is to be commended by him. To have him say it when we see him face to face, well done, good and faithful servant. Th that's our biggest reward, seeing the smile on Jesus' face when he gets to say to you and me, well done, you followed me as best you could. No, it wasn't perfect. Yes, you did it in a messed up world, but well done. I've been cheering you on all this time. I want to hear that commendation. I want to see your faces when he commends you. And when you hear those same words from him, that will bring great delight for all of us in this room. One of the dominant hopes of great Christians from the past has always been the return of Jesus. 
Alexander McLaren, an influential Christian in Great Britain and Scotland at the beginning of the 20th century, had this to say about the return of Jesus. Quote, The primitive church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death or about heaven. The early Christians were not looking for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were watching not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. I love that. Not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker, the one who will lift you into the skies, the one who will take you to your reward, the one who brings heaven with him when he comes. The paragraph from Paul's letter to Titus that we read a few minutes ago gives us some insight into this concept. Paul wrote about two different appearances of Jesus. So in a sense, those five verses that we read a moment ago are a tale of two appearances. Here's the first. The first has already occurred. We find this in verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to some things, to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to say yes to some other things, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The Apostle Paul wrote this as an encouragement in his letter to a young man named Titus. Titus was one of the next generation pastors who was trained by Paul. Titus had been part of Paul's traveling team during his third missionary journey. Most of the scholars say this happened somewhere between 53 or 54 AD and ended around 57 AD, perhaps as late as early 58. Around the end of that journey, Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea to organize the small church that was beginning to develop there. And Paul reminded him of the grace that had appeared through Jesus' earthly ministry. Excuse me. Through that first appearance of Jesus, Paul now says that God's grace has been offered. The New Testament word that's used here for our English word appeared is kind of interesting. It's actually the Greek word from which we get our word epiphany. Do you know what an epiphany is? Epiphany is when you have this aha moment where all of a sudden you see or understand something that you didn't see before. The dictionary defines it this way, that an epiphany is an experience of a sudden and striking realization or revelation the word is often used to describe a scientific breakthrough or a religious discovery. In that sense, an epiphany is the discovery of something that had been hidden until now that makes a huge difference. So, the arrival of Jesus the first time was an epiphany. Not some kind of mystical vision that one person saw and nobody else saw, but no, his entire life was an epiphany. It brought about a realization that God was entering the world and that his grace had arrived. Now, uh, grace was an old concept. It was talked about in the Old Testament too, but the fullness of grace had come in the person of Jesus. In his first appearance, Jesus offered a life-changing grace of salvation. The way of Jesus stands here in contrast to the world as it is apart from Jesus. And Paul is telling us that people who embrace this grace are saved from a pagan and ungodly culture that is always shifting. 
This is the epiphany of grace, that it stands out, that it's different, that it's beautiful, that it's wonderful. Jesus' arrival led to the discovery or realization that grace had arrived in fullness through Jesus. Now, here's the second appearance. The second is yet to come. And so verses 13 and 14 reveal this for us. Here Paul writes, while we wait for the blessed hope. There's that phrase. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good. Verse 13 follows up with the second appearance or the second coming of Jesus. The concept of this blessed hope comes from this verse. It's the only time that phrase is used in the Bible. Here, Paul used the same Greek word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 to describe this. He speaks of a blessed hope. The word that's used there in Greek is makarios. It's the same one that he begins each of those lines in the Beatitudes. Blessed is the person who... So he's using that word blessed again. It means a blessed hope or a happy hope or a beautiful hope. Now combine this. As Paul use, uses for a second time that word epiphany or appearance. He says that this is a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This second appearance is the appearance of glory, where the first appearance was the appearance of grace. We await the epiphany, the arrival, the realization in fullness of the glory of Christ in fullness. In this second coming, Jesus' divine authority as both God and as Savior will be on full display. While Paul speaks of the redemptive work of Jesus in past tense, meaning it was completed, he now hints at the final product of his redeeming work. Jesus arrives to be reunited with the people he has been redeeming all along. In verses 12 and 14, Paul points to the Christian's response to these two appearances. His first appearance leads us to live self-controlled, godly lives, and the anticipation of his return leads to, the, to an eager desire to do what is good in his eyes. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement. At the risk of labeling Christians as do-gooders. Now, how often has somebody taken a shot at you that way? Oh, you're one of those do-gooders. You can respond now, yes, I am. Yes, I am, because that's what Jesus prompts me to become. It's the thought, it's that hope that he is coming again that causes us to want to be found doing the things that honor him in life, doing things that are redemptive in life, doing things that are transformative in life. We not only want to have him bless the entirety of our Christian experience, but the moment when he returns, if he returns while we're still here, we want to be found doing things that bring honor and glory to his name. That's what Paul is pointing to. Every day, he's saying, think of how you can use the opportunities that you have, the opportunities that I have, to do something that reflects Jesus in this world. The next question that I had in thinking this through, why do we have this particular hope? 
Why did this become a phrase that was repeated again and again through generations of Christians, even though it's only used once in all the New Testament scriptures? This blessed hope. Why this particular hope? Three reasons. First, Jesus said he was coming again. This is why we believe in the return of Christ, first of all, because he promised it. John 14, these wonderful words that many of you are familiar with. He says, My Father's house has many rooms. And if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. These were the words that prompted another lyric in that song that David just wrote and sang for us, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. This is the clearest among several statements from Jesus about his second coming. Jesus made this particular statement during the Last Supper with his disciples. Isn't that interesting? We're, we're celebrating that here together as well today. He told them that he would prepare a place for his followers in his Father's house. That reference to the Father's house really is speaking of the kingdom of heaven, wherever that is, whatever that is like. And he promised to return and bring them to this house. It's a promise that you and I put our hopes in as well. Later he clarifies that saying, you know the way, I am the way. You know, you know the truth, I am the truth, and I am the life. And this is the exclusive path. It's a specific, unique pathway that Jesus tells us about that no one else has the right to invite people to spend eternity in his father's home except Jesus. That is why we exclusively follow Jesus. Jesus alluded to his return several times in his teaching. If you were to read the whole chapters of Matthew 24 and 25, these two chapters were devoted to answering one simple question. When will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming that his disciples had asked? Let's skip to the second reason. It was promised by angels. So Jesus said he was coming again, but the angels backed him up. Uh, here's uh, Acts chapter 1. Jesus is ascending back to the Father. Verses 9 through 11, it says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So immediately after Jesus ascends into the heavens, two angels appear to the disciples. They're called two men here dressed in white. Uh, who are the two men who dress in white every time you see them? They were confused. They appeared as men, but the disciples thought well, they looked like regular people, except for this glowing white garb that they have. They're angels who show up, and they are providing some of the insight about what the disciples just watched as they saw Jesus disappear. They encouraged the disciples, saying that Jesus would come in the same way that he had left. In other words, he would come with the clouds. People will see him when he arrives, and he will come with the clouds. This is consistent with how Jesus described his return in Matthew 24, 30, 24, verses uh, 39, and in chapter 24, verses 42 to 47, and in chapter 25, 
verses 31. It says, Then will appear the sign, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The clouds in the Bible are often associated with the glory of God. The picture is not so much that Jesus is riding the clouds like a surfer off of Huntington Beach, but rather that he's coming with the clouds. In the midst of them, he appears, just as they had seen him leave in Acts 9. So when the service ends and you walk outside, if the rain is stopped by any chance and you see somebody looking up, don't think that they're looking for the rain. They're looking for Jesus. Because someday, when he returns, whether we're here or not, he's going to come with the clouds, the same way that he left. Alistair Begg once said, the return of Jesus will be personal, physical, visible, and glorious. Here's the third reason. It was reinforced in several of these New Testament letters. So, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, this is our theme verse for today. Paul says, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus is one of several letters that refer to this looking for the return of Jesus. Not only did Paul write to Titus about Jesus' return, he wrote about his return in 1 Corinthians 15, in Colossians 3, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Philippians and some of the other New Testament letters refer to the day of the, of, of the Christ or the day of the Lord. That's all one event in, in their speaking, but it's all the events that will happen when Jesus comes back. Peter referred to the second coming in 1 Peter chapter 1. There he wrote of the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then we have the entire book of Revelation that unfolds pictures that are hard to interpret but give us glimpses of what is yet to come. Here's the point. The return of Jesus concludes the redemptive arc of God's work in human history. It concludes the work that Jesus started when he came the first time. Not that Jesus hadn't finished all that was necessary for salvation, but what's left to be completed is to gather his people and to put on full display the brilliance and power of his glory. David Jeremiah made a comment about all this. He said, when Christ returns and only then Will the angel's message to the shepherds be totally fulfilled? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And we look for that day. Final thought. What can we know about his coming? Let me just rifle through eight things that I put on the back page of your notes. Here's the first. Jesus is coming again. Here's the second. When Jesus comes again, he is coming with the clouds. There are a number of references where the Bible tells us that. Jesus himself told us that. Every eye will see him. It won't be done in a corner, and it, it won't be mistaken, it won't be hidden. It'll be open this time. He's coming to gather those who belong to him. It's why we want to look for him. Our hope is that he comes while we're still here on this earth, but we don't know when he's coming. 
Many people will be surprised when Jesus returns. And the Bible says that the tribes of the earth or the nations of the earth will mourn. Because there are many people who know about Jesus, but they've never trusted Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is just a concept in their minds. But when they see him on that day, it will be too late because he's coming not only to gather his own, but to bring his judgment too. Seven, no one knows the day or the hour except the Father himself. There's this great mystery. Please do not get sucked into the newest book that comes out where somebody has a prediction. Some of you are old enough to remember 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988, which was quickly followed by 89 Reasons Why He Will Follow in 89. And then another author came out in 1993 with another prediction of how Jesus was going to come sometime in 93 or 94. Guys, we don't know. The, 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 the sneaky trick that the author of 88 Reasons had back then was, well, the Bible says we won't know the day or the hour, but we can know the year, the month, the minute, the second. It's, come on. It wasn't a literal statement. Jesus meant... We will not know. It will be a surprise. Day or the hour is good enough for me. We, we don't know when he's coming. And last, Jesus taught us to live now in anticipation of that day. You know how powerfully he meant that? He embedded it in two of our most well-loved traditions. So we already noted how the communion text that we read from Luke 22 points us forward to the day when we will celebrate with Jesus in the kingdom of God. But here's the other one. Buried in the midst of the Lord's Prayer are these words, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Knowing that one day he will bring the fulfillment of something that we work toward now, and only then will it be complete. I love the way that uh, G. Campbell Morgan, great pastor from London in the early part of the, or middle part of the 20th century, he said, I never begin my work in the morning without thinking that perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. I am not looking for death, I am looking for him. I like that thought. We're not looking for death. Death may come before we see him, but we're looking for him because he may come before we expect. And no matter what system we hold to of how we interpret Revelation and Daniel and when we think it's coming, there will be a surprise factor. Hold on to that surprise factor. We don't know when, but we look for his return. Those who follow Jesus anticipate his return to gather his people and to complete God's story of redemption. Only then is redemption complete. Which leads with, to, to one final question for us today. Are you looking for Jesus? Are you looking for our blessed hope? Don't lose that. Don't think that it's just about this life as we know it now. He's coming again. He's coming for you. He's coming for me. He's coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us 
and for giving us this ultimate hope that you're not done with this world, that there's a chapter yet to unfold. Keep us faithful until you come again, until you return. And fill our hearts with a different outlook on what this day brings and what tomorrow brings, knowing that Jesus will surprise us, that no matter how clever and crafty or interpretive we are with Scripture, we will never know the exact moment that he comes. Thank you for busting our expectations and for busting our systems that we try to fit you into. But thank you for giving us this hope that we hold on to that you're not done with this world and full justice and full redemption will be on display when Jesus finally returns. Keep us faithful to them. Help us to encourage each other looking for that day, living every day with the hope that maybe this is the day. Lord, hear the heart of anybody who may be willing to call out to you and say, you're really coming back. I want to be ready on that day. So here I come, doubts and all. I'm putting my faith in you. I'm putting my hopes in you, Lord Jesus. Come into my life today as the Savior. Thank you for your first appearance. Ready me, prepare me, mold me to be ready for the day when you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. Our ushers are going to come and we'll receive this morning's offering. It's part of our worship. And we've got this great song that we're going to conclude with that I think is very fitting for what we're talking about today. It's called Revelation Song because we've been thinking through and celebrating some of the revelations of God as He unfolds what is yet coming in the future.